Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome to the Abby Khan Show. I mean that latter of the ladies and germs, the germs part, quite literally, because today we're going to be talking with Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro on the microbiome and gut health. The rise of popularity with this particular topic in the last few years is just being astronomical and everyone thinks they're an expert in this field. I'm literally about to talk to an expert and you guys are about to share the journey with me. Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro has a long, long, long list of accomplishments. She's just an avid studier and research. She just loves having endless amounts of accreditations to her name. So I'm just going to give you the lowdown. She's a former assistant professor of exercise science, has a PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise from Virginia Tech, as well as a bachelor's in exercise, sport and health education. She is also an ACE certified health coach with both Monash Low FODMAP and ISSN Sport Nutrition Certifications. We are going to talk about the microbiome, what it actually is, what it is by definition, what the difference between the microbiome and the microbiota is. We're about to talk all things bacteria, <laughs> essentially. Now, stay with me. We're about to talk about the things that you guys need to be aware of when you are consuming foods, how it's going to affect your daily life in terms from a cognitive perspective and also how you're feeling from an energy level perspective. We're going to talk about leaky gut. We're going to talk about how to create a healthy gut. We're going to talk about what a dysfunctional, quote unquote dysfunctional, being a relative term, means for your performance in the gym. And we're we're going to talk about a whole lot more. You guys are going to absolutely love this episode. Please get your pens and papers ready and enjoy this episode with Dr. Gabrielle Fondara. You're listening to The Abby Khan Show, a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible. My name's Abby Khan. I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, find out how they optimize their lives for success, and how you can do the same. Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It is, it is an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to talk to you for a while, but for the people that may not know who you are, can you just give us a little bit of the highlight reel of your story so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, Gabrielle Fondero. I uh, have my PhD in the area of gut microbiome and skeletal muscle metabolism, bachelor's in exercise science. I did a stint in um, exercise science as an assistant professor for four years before I transitioned to coaching full-time. My last year of teaching, I started as a coach with Renaissance Periodization, and then within the year following my um, resignation from academia, I started my own business as well, Vitamin PhD Nutrition, and I performed telehealth through that. I perform one-to-one email coaching through RP, as well as producing educational content and giving seminars uh, on the internet and at times around the world, so that's super fun. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of the short and dirty uh, version of, of my life for the past several years. What got you into the microbiome? I guess it's, it's a very, very focused field, especially when you got into it studying your PhD. I mean, it's now popular, but back then, I imagine it probably wouldn't have been quite as prominent as it is now. No, I guess I can say, like, I don't want to say I'm a gut health expert or something, but I guess I'm like a gut health hipster, or like a gut microbiome hipster, because, um, yeah, I started studying this sort of on accident for my, for my doctorate. I went into that program with the intention of studying high-fat feeding and skeletal muscle metabolism and how a chronic high-fat diet, sort of a, a um, standard American diet, westernized um, you know, dietary pattern, could contribute to muscle wasting and or prevent hypertrophy um, via mTOR signaling. So that uh, that study was underway in rodents, went off pretty much without a hitch, and then I had this sort of side project looking at probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding. And really, the only reason that I got that I got that study uh, dropped into my lap was, um, you know, we got some funding for it. Uh, and prior to that, I'd been sort of haranguing my my PI saying well, you know, why aren't we looking in the gut? If we're injecting mice with LPS, lipopolysaccharide, which is an endotoxin that comes from the gut, and we're doing this to induce metabolic inflexibility and look at mitochondrial dysregulation and all this, why aren't we then looking at the gut to see, you know, that seems to be sort of the, the uh, you know, primary issue here. 
And, um, you know, understandably, we were not a, we were not a, a, an intestinal, you know, gastrointestinal physiology lab. We were a skeletal muscle phys and biochem lab. And so he was a little bit hesitant initially, but then when this funding uh, became available, it was, you know, we had an opportunity where we could apply probiotic supplementation to uh, skeletal muscle metabolism. And so that side project became my main project when my main project samples were lost due to some some storage issues. <laughs> and it was like an oh shit moment, you know, what am I going to do? Um, fortunately, it happened really in the beginning. It was like the first, you know, few months of, uh, or of my, maybe within the first six months of my studies. So I switched over and, and ran several iterations of that um, rodent study looking at uh, high fat feeding with or without probiotic supplementation and looking at markers of metabolic flexibility, mitochondrial function and dysfunction, um, systemic inflammation, sort of the, the, you know, the umbrella term that we use, metabolic endotoxemia, which was coined by one of the, um, I would say, leaders in microbiome research, Patrice Connie. So this started, I was back, it was back in 2009 when I started. I finished in 2014, and I really had no intention of doing much with the gut microbiome. Um, I wanted I wanted to teach, and so I was offered a, an academic position right before I descended uh, in a teaching heavy institution. And so I skedaddled. I was like, "All right, cool. I you know did what I needed to do. That was five years of my life. I'm ready for the next chapter. I want to start teaching." And so I, I started teaching in exercise science um, and sport nutrition. And so um, because I just don't ever want to stop learning and getting certifications and stuff like that, I was working on my CISSM certification, so that's Sport Nutritionist through the International Society of Sport Nutrition. I, was, um, I had a little tiny blog. I was posting in their Facebook group one day, sort of debating someone, you know, collegially. And um, then Mike Isratel came across my posts and whatnot there, and, and he recruited me, as I mentioned earlier. You know, I, this is in my fourth year of teaching. So fast forward a year, teaching and coaching simultaneously, I come to the realization that coaching is much more fulfilling and I can really engage with people in the way that I was desiring to as an educator. Um, decided to, to resign and then Mike and I had a discussion that, you know, because I have my background in gut microbiome research, that I could be an evidence-based source of information for sort of the fitness industry. So it was really just a series of sort of like happy accidents, being in the right place at the right time with the with the right you know credentials and qualifications that brought me to being a, a gut microbiome science communicator on Instagram years later. Um, so I really I honestly never thought that I was going to do anything with this, but um, I'm glad that I you know can be that voice and and I'm appreciative that I have that platform um, along with you know several other people that I. You as, as my colleagues and peers who put out really great evidence-based um, information in the gut microbiome as well. So it's, a, as we spoke about briefly, it is a quite a popular topic right now, especially on social media. Everyone's everyone's an expert in everything, and now they're apparently yeah. experts in the microbiome. So what is the microbiome? If we were to give it a, a rough sort of definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... When we say the the word microbiome, we often use it interchangeably with microbiota. Those are two different things. So the microbiota refers to the microorganisms that inhabit, in this case, the gastrointestinal tract. But humans are actually colonized with uh, a number of different uh, microbiota populations. The microbiome refers to the microorganisms and all of their genetic material. So, so when we talk about gut microbiome, we're talking about who's there, and then all, uh, and then what can they do. So we're looking at, you know, all the genetic material. It's really all of the. It, it's like a recipe book for various proteins that we can make. But we have the gut microbiome. We have an oral microbiome. We have a skin microbiome. We have uh, a gallbladder microbiome. We have uh, in females a vaginal microbiome. They're all. Uh, significantly different populations, so they look very different. Uh, two people's skin microbiomes will m- look more similar than one person's skin microbiome will be to their gastrointestinal microbiome, for example. And the microbiome of the gastrointestinal tract varies longitudinally. So as we go from stomach to uh, rectum, it's going to look very different, um, and also cross-sectionally. So when we look at the lumen or the hole in the center of the intestine versus the mucosal layer, we see differences there as well. So when we're looking at the types of microorganisms there, primarily bacteria, but we also have uh, archaea, we have fungi like yeasts, we have um, viruses there as well, and then we have viruses that might infect 
bacteria, and we call those bacteriophages. So it's a really diverse group of microorganisms, and they're all interacting with each other and with our own uh, intestinal and immune cells as well. So we can think of it sort of like a miniature ecosystem. It's more complex than I think we give it credit for. So if someone has a, I guess, a dysfunctional gut, I want to specifically target the, the gut microbiome. So if someone has a dysfunctional gut, how does that affect daily life from like a cognition standpoint, energy level standpoint? Well, we first have to define what we mean by a dysfunctional gut. Um, so the, there's, there's sort of a disconnect between the, um, the way that we are sort of measuring, you know, who's there and what they're doing and how that's interpreted by uh, the fitness industry or lay people or, you know, just an interested scientific audience, I guess. So um, the, the term dysbiosis is commonly used sort of colloquially to refer to something being dysfunctional. But the definition of dysbiosis isn't dysfunctional. It's just altered, just different compared to the control group. And the problem really lies in, in our application of that to mean something bad because that also means that there must be something good. There must be a healthy gut microbiome. We must have a profile that, that means this is a healthy gut so we can compare that and say, well, this is an unhealthy gut. And in fact, we don't have that. Healthy controls around the world cluster regionally. So a healthy individual from uh, Korea will look different from a healthy individual from Africa, who will look different from a healthy individual from Japan or the United States. They're all considered to be healthy in, the, in, in terms of being free of any uh, functional or organic diseases. But we don't know that, that you know, healthy in the United States is the same sort of version of healthy as a person who's living in um, a developing country because we've got difference in, differences in um, uh, fiber intake. We have differences in sanitation practices. We have differences in what's passed down generationally. So there's some evidence in rodents that over time we can actually lose uh, diversity in the GI, uh, in, in, in the gut microbiome from uh, mother to offspring over time, and that happens if we have like a fiber-deficient diet. So there's a whole theory that in the United States, perhaps we don't even have a quote-unquote healthy microbiome because we've lost diversity over the course of many generations as our diet has changed. But that's just a theory. We really have no way of, of you know, adding much credence or strength to that theory. So the idea of having a dysfunctional gut, a, 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 a sort of bad gut health is, is what might, people might say, or dysbiosis, um, we're kind of trying to extrapolate based on research that uh, on findings from people who, who do have a known disease. So we can look at those people and say, well, what microbes are over or underrepresented? Well, does that mean that is that is that a cause of the disease? Is that a consequence of the, of the disease? Is it just a coincidence? We don't have that data yet. Now it's starting to emerge. Um, you know, as, as we're able to learn from, from past studies and, and design new ones in better ways so we can approach something like a causal relationship, but we're just not there yet. So in answer to the question, you know, how does a dysfunctional gut affect everyday functioning? Well, we don't even know what a dysbiotic gut actually looks like. We do have some keystone species where we can say, okay, you know, we should definitely have like F. krasnitsii. We need Roseburia. Um, bifidobacteria seem to be really beneficial, uh, but we don't have like a clinical cutoff to say, well, if your bifidobacteria are this low, that means that you have a diagnosis of low bifido. We just don't have that. In some cases, if we have a pathogenic microbe, something like C. diff, we can say, okay, you know, at this point you have this level and you're having symptoms of a C. diff infection, that's certainly problematic. We can treat that with antibiotics. But we don't wipe those guys out entirely. And we can have some pathogenic strains of something like E. coli. They just hang out. They don't do anything if their numbers are low enough. But that's relative to the abundance of all the other microbes. So when we look at, you know, when we're trying to determine sort of what's a healthy or an unhealthy gut, um, sometimes we'll look at maybe diversity. Okay, well, diversity is looking at the relative abundance of these various species. So how many species are there? And then uh, how abundant are each of those? We generally want to have uh, a large number of species that don't seem to do anything, neither good nor bad, they're just neutral. Uh, and then we want some that seem to be producing beneficial compounds for us, like beneficial short-chain fatty acids. 
and relatively fewer of the ones that can potentially produce toxins that might make us sick. But again, we're looking at relative abundances because as the neutral and good guys uh, thrive, they can help to suppress the growth of the potential pathogens. Not really to benefit us, but because they're organisms competing for real estate and for nutrients. They just want their own shit, right? Like, like they're, they want their own corner and they're going to, you know, produce toxins and things that will kill other bacteria or use mechanical, uh, um, you know, biological machinery to kill other species. So how might that manifest then in terms of a disease state? We really don't know. It just happens that, you know, sometimes we have correlates with, you know, people who might have an inflammatory bowel disease might sort of characteristically have an underrepresentation of certain strains. But even within one disease, we don't have the same dysbiosis, quote unquote, from person to person. So that's the problem. We, we just don't have the data yet to say, oh, if you have, you know, dysbiosis, it'll manifest in this way. And quite often people think that, oh, if they have a GI distress issue or something that, or, or um, you know, they, they say they think they have a leaky gut because of dysbiosis. Actual, actually, um, you know, there, there has been, there's actually a really good systematic review that looked at some of the risk of leaky gut, for example, and they found that it didn't correlate with any specific profile uh, of bacteria. So how would it manifest? We don't know because we don't even have the ability to say what is a healthy gut versus what is a dysbiotic gut. Um, and and within the absence of a, of, a, of a disease state, like an inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, there's really no way for you to know what profile of microbiota you would have based on, um, you know, just if you're feeling tired that day or you have gas or something like that. So... That's my that's my non-answer to your question. I hope it doesn't <laughs> burst the bubble on, on all the other questions that you have to ask no. because we I think we overestimate the our capability to to modify the microbiome um, and and how that would even look if we did. No, it's brilliant. It, it puts things very much into context of when we when we obviously see on on social media, especially people talking about you know being microbiome experts and, and, and giving us it in black and white we're like oh okay yeah no i get that if i've got leaky gut it means my you know microbiome's fucked or you know all these yeah. sort of very black and white statements but you've just put in context like well we don't have enough data to be able to give that that reasoning so i think it helps a lot so people can actually go okay well if we don't have enough data, then these might not be as bad as it seems. Maybe I need to look at other external factors. Maybe I need to look at the types of foods that I'm eating that might not be agreeing with me. Maybe I need to look at, am I getting enough sleep? Am I, is my cardiovascular system healthy? Things of that nature. Yes, absolutely. So if someone, for example, does have that GI distress and, and things suffering a leaky gut, syndrome what is going on there i guess from a physiological standpoint in that and gut and intestines to to create that well there um there are a few different theories about what might lead to i i i hesitate to use the term leaky gut that was actually coined by a researcher in the field but it's again sort of been co-opted by marketers and and you know i don't know gut microbiome experts on the internet um so altered intestinal permeability is a state in which the spaces between the intestinal cells uh, are opened up, for lack of a better term. Normally, the intestinal cells are held together by tight junction proteins, layers of tight junction proteins, so that the uh, cell, that so that the intestinal wall is only selectively permeable. We have some things that can go in, that can diffuse through, like very small short chain fatty acids. For the most part, anything that's going into the intestinal cell is going through some sort of transporter or channel being processed in some way before it enters the bloodstream. In the case of altered intestinal permeability, we may have uh, larger molecules, larger compounds that leak out in between the intestinal cells and are not processed in the way that they're supposed to be. And they can come into contact then with the immune cells that lie directly beneath the intestinal cells, or it may go into the blood and then interact with immune cells or peripheral tissues throughout the body, um, like skeletal muscle. So skeletal muscle does actually contain uh, immune receptors, and then if some of these compounds like the LPS binds to that, it can cause an inflammatory cascade. So there is a theory that this inflammatory cascade then sort of has a, um, a feedback mechanism. So it further downregulates the expression of those tight junction proteins, leading to more intestinal permeability, leading to more inflammation. 
the first insult that sort of causes that intestinal permeability could potentially be uh, members of, of the microbiome. So they could be down-regulating uh, expression of those tight junction proteins and leading to intestinal permeability. Uh, could be um, uh, dietary patterns that, are, that lack fiber, and so there's a loss of the protective mucus layer, and then the members of the microbiome may then, again, interact with those tight junction proteins in some way. Uh, and it could be, you know, I mean, to people, people use the term toxins. Um, could be other, um, perhaps, things that we are ingesting or being exposed to that haven't yet been elucidated. We don't know that yet. There are seem to be some risk, potential risk factors for altered intestinal permeability most of them are lifestyle related. So things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, uh, alcohol-related cirrhosis of the litter, uh, liver, um, uh, body mass index uh, above 35 to 40, um, and uh, gestational diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So those seem to be associated with an increased risk of altered intestinal permeability. Um, but again, we don't have a causative, we don't have a causal relationship there. And, um, you know, it could be that those things correlate with other things like dietary patterns, and maybe it's really the dietary pattern. So we really just don't know. And we also don't have outward symptoms of altered intestinal permeability um, that we've been able to really establish yet. But even this low-grade inflammation, uh, that, that metabolic endotoxemia doesn't appear to have outward uh, symptoms, but it does seem to be associated with things like altered um, uh, insulin sensitivity. The, the way that, you know, the ways that we can test intestinal permeability are, uh, are, aren't foolproof either. They have a number of, of limitations based on how the lab actually um, uh, administers the test and then what substrates are used. Some are, are more direct than others. And uh, one of the ways that we sort of measure metabolic end uh, endotoxemia through looking at levels of lipopolysaccharide or LPS in the blood, that's really problematic too. We actually don't really have a cutoff for what is metabolic endotoxemia. We have something less than sepsis. You're not in the hospital. But other than that, it's sort of like it's anyone's game. Like labs can be like, oh, yeah, this is metabolic endotoxemia because we think it is. Um, so, again, that, that can be pr pretty problematic because we really don't have ways to um, measure it accurately and then determine you know, what are the clinical outcomes and does it even matter? Even intense exercise appears to in in increase intestinal permeability and people aren't like, stop exercising intensely, you know? <laughs> so with issues such as that, whether it's uh, GI distress, you know, again, quote unquote, the, the leaky gut syndrome that marketers have ruined for everybody as they always do. How, if someone's suffering with that, any I guess, gut microbiome issues, how would that affect performance and would it affect performance in the gym or training? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously with GI distress related to, so GI distress can be related to food intake. So there are, especially when it comes to carbohydrates, we might take in carbohydrates that have specific chemical properties that make them highly fermentable which is great for the microbiome. I mean, those little guys, that's what they want. They, micro, they want microbe accessible carbohydrates. They're going to ferment them either, either to short-chain fatty acids, which can have some benefit, or potential, potentially gases, which um, can make us feel all windy and bloated, and, you know, that's very uncomfortable. So I think that's where people sort of conflate that with being like bad gut health. If you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm having uh, gas or diarrhea because they can be, uh, those fibers can be, uh, or carbohydrates can be osmotically active. They can pull water into the gut. So people think, oh, I must really have bad gut health. Well, in reality, the microbes are just doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're living organisms and you're just kind of suffering the consequences of the chemical properties of those carbohydrates. Um, or you may have a, a, an intolerance. You may have lactose intolerance. And so the lactose isn't being broken down in your small intestine, goes through your large intestine or it's fermented. You could potentially have a non-IgE-mediated food allergy, so one that you won't get hives and anaphylaxis from it, but you would have uh, immediate severe GI distress. So that's potentially that it could be just, you know, it's a dietary uh, thing, and if you went through a, a controlled systematic process of elimination, testing, and reintroduction, you'd be able to identify that and, and manage your diet that way. If the GI distress is coming from 
training, which is certainly the case. There's exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, so we uh, uh, have extreme. We have a change in um, GI motility or movement of the gut. We have a change in the oxygen availability in the gut that can have an acute effect on the microbiome um, and and on the tissues as well. We have just mechanical stress, a lot of jostling of, of the intestines that could potentially play a role. And certainly if a person has irritable bowel syndrome, they're going to have visceral hypersensitivity. So the GI tract is already um, sort of on, you can think of it on like being on alert that there's going to be some uh, aberrant nervous signaling to the brain to say, hey, this isn't normal. We should be experiencing pain right now. So all of those things can come together to reduce our ability to uh, digest and absorb nutrients so they stay in the lumen of the intestine longer, and then that can cause things like pouring water into the gut, um, cramping, uh, we have diarrhea. Um, so, so that is all sort of a, um, you know, sort of a trifecta that, that comes together and can cause extreme GI distress around intense exercise. We can modify that. We can manage that through diet as well. Generally speaking, we want to avoid fiber, fat, uh, and fructose um, right before we, we exercise. That can help reduce some of the um, insult to, to the GI tract. If we're eating something that's a relatively small meal that's uh, high in, in um, starches, something like rice cakes and perhaps a lean protein source, you know, avoiding some of those really fermentable carbohydrates, avoiding lactose, uh, we, we might feel a little bit better um, than if we were to have something like a, a peanut butter and banana sandwich on whole grain bread, because that's a lot of fiber and it's a lot of fat. Not to say that some people can't handle that, but if you find that you're really sensitive to, to um, eating before your workout, that's one way that you can manage that. Now, could it potentially affect performance? Absolutely, especially if we're talking about, you know, most of the literature is looking at uh, ex extreme endurance athletes. If you're an endurance athlete and you're having, you know, severe runner's trots, you're having to take a huge watery dump in the middle of your run, they're not going to pause the, the clock for you. Like, you've got to go to the portage on and you have to handle that. And then, of course, there are issues of, you know, if you're losing a lot of water because you're, um, you know, having extreme diarrhea, that might lead to, to suboptimal hydration. And it's very painful. Uh, it can, you know, make it difficult to refuel after your workout. So, you know, in very like in very real sort of acute ways, yes, GI distress around your workout can certainly uh, impede performance. Does that, you know, over time, is it going to impede gains? In lifters, we don't really have a lot of data. So there's not much to, out there on resistance training. Uh, but, you know, in terms of endurance training, I think if we look at more how is it affecting your, your fueling, um, you know, during and after your, your events. And if you're having chronic diarrhea most days that you're running, then, yeah, it's something that I think could impede, you know, gains over time. Is there a rough guideline on the on the pre-workout meal, what we should sort of be airing towards? And obviously you said that away from high fiber, high fat, high fructose, but is there other things that we need to be looking towards to optimize performance and minimize that GI distress? Yeah, so um, it, we can look at sort of the, the pre-workout window. So it takes about one to four hours for a meal to exit your stomach and get into the small intestine where nutrients are actually going to be absorbed. So the size of the meal and um, the, the concentration of the meal and sort of the fattiness of the meal uh, affects that gastric emptying time as well. So if you have, you know, if you're not going to be working out for several hours, you can probably pretty safely have a mixed meal that doesn't make you feel too full or sloshy. But if you're looking at something within less than four hours, the closer you are to your, to your uh, exercise bout, the lower you want your fat intake to be. So as much as you can sort of just mix the fats, especially if you're looking at, you know, within the next hour, ideally no fats in that meal. And then if we want to avoid fructose, we're probably going to err on the side of uh, minimal to no fruit or having lower fructose uh, fruits. Um, you know, probably not having something like dried fruit because that's going to be a really concentrated fructose source. And if we want to have something like a candy, it might help for us to avoid things that have high fructose corn syrup. Not to demonize fructose, it's just that because fructose is slowly absorbed, it can kind of hang out in the gut and pull water in and cause um, a laxative effect. So, so that's one way that we can avoid that. 
So that there's our fructose, there's our fat. And then in terms of keeping fiber intake low, this is one opportunity where you would just choose something that's, you know, you don't need to really have many veggies in this meal and you might choose something that's not a whole grain source. So you want to go for a refined carbohydrate, ideally, if you're having something in close proximity to that meal. And uh, the sport nutrition guidelines are anywhere from from one to four uh, grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight, one to four hours before your exercise bout. So again, if we're close to the exercise bout, we want to have a smaller meal, so fewer carbohydrates. Protein intake, um, you can keep that to about that, you know, our 20 to 40 grams per every three to five hours. But again, trying to keep that a leaner protein source and probably avoiding dairy if you find yourself to be sensitive to lactose. What happens if someone's doing a two-a-day workout? So their pre-workout meal generally be low fiber, but their post-workout meal, which is gonna be the pre-workout meal for the second meal, I know myself, I do a two-a-day, that if I have veggies in that second meal, I'm ruined for the, for the... So would you just skip them and just have, say, a load at nighttime? Yeah, you could certainly do that. Or if you wanted to sort of try to get some veggies in, um, but keep them, you know, to like uh, keeping the fiber still relatively low, you could go for something like a starchy veggie, at least to kind of supplement. But again, if we're looking at that two a day, that post workout window after that um, first workout is going to be a little bit more uh, essential than if we're doing a one a day workout where we kind of have, oh, we've got 24 hours to replenish glycogen stores. We're doing two intense workouts in a day. That post-workout slash next workout pre-workout meal, we probably might want to um, err on the side of having more high GI carbohydrates and, again, very low fat to speed gastric emptying and, and nutrient absorption um, and, and uh, you know, sort of refueling for that next workout. But if you wanted to, you could, you know, some have like add in some potatoes. Still is a plant. It still is a vegetable. It's just a starchy vegetable, you know. Um, I guess you were talking about like horticulture versus agriculture, which is not my area. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, I'm like that still counts as a plant. That's great. Or um, uh, like yucca is another one that's super high in carbohydrates. Cassava. So there are some options that are still plant based um, that are. Uh, you know, maybe going to confer a little bit of fiber, but they're still going to be very um, carbohydrate dense and low in fat. Um, so, and again, we would just kind of want to keep that, you know, the fat intake in that meal fairly low. The other thing to consider would be hydration. So if we are, and, and then peri-workout nutrition. So if we're doing something that's going to go 90 minutes or longer, then we might need to, again, supplement some carbohydrates during our exercise bout. And in that case, um, a, a, a peri-workout beverage, the concentration is really going to be key there uh, because if we have something that's too diluted or too concentrated, it won't be effectively, uh, it won't be efficiently absorbed. So anywhere from a 6 to 10% carbohydrate concentration, uh, 6 to 8 is more is, is pretty much handled by everyone. 10%, you might need to train that. So it would be you know 6 grams of carbohydrate per 100 mils fluid is what you would aim for. Uh, for your peri-workout nutrition. If you're doing solids and liquids, you can kind of just, you know, keep an eye on, like, how many grams are you taking in um, per hour and then, you know, plan your your hydration thusly, and you're aiming for about 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, up to 90 grams, again, if you've kind of trained your GI tract. So we can actually work up to these higher levels of intake uh, over time, but it's ideal if you're going to, if this, you're just kind of starting out with peri-workout nutrition, air on the lower side and see how you feel with that first. So I guess typical meal of like say red meat and rice or something like that straight after might not be a great idea. You'd mind yeah, it kind you'd... of would depend on the leanness of the meat. I mean, rice would be ideal, yeah. but if, you know, but red meat, if you're doing something like, I don't know, ribeye, that's going to be super fatty. But mm. if you're, you know, a 96, four, um, ground, ground beef, beef kind yeah. of person, that would probably be fine. Mm. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So I wanted to touch on flexible diet and the approach of flexible diet and if it fits your macros, sort of trying to combine quote unquote clean foods with quote unquote healthy foods and how that affects the, the gut and how that can that can that lead to a greater um, issue in the in the GI tract yeah so I think this is um, this is a pretty interesting area because it um, there there's some compelling data that's looked at you know comparing um, the, the more or less processed foods even to the extent of like you know does cooking the food or not make a difference and then what if we have a 
sort of refined, so the rodent diets, we have like a refined westernized diet versus rodent chow, which is relatively less refined. We can also look at um, differences in groups, um, you know, and just look at like correlational data. Like, okay, people in, in rural areas that are eating 150 grams of fiber per day and a very uh, minimally processed food intake versus those of us in, in the U.S. who eat, you know, a westernized diet. Um, and, and then, you know, there, I, Kevin Hall's, um, recent analysis looking at, you know, plant-based versus animal-based and also, you know, he had also done work looking at, um, uh, more or less processed, um, diets. So there are a couple different factors here. We have to look at the fiber content of the diet because that's really when we're looking, I mean, when we're looking at gut microbiome, obviously there's going to be differences when we're looking at like thermic effect of food and things like that. There are other aspects that we would have to consider hyperpalatability, are people going to eat more or less? But when we're looking at potential effects on the gut microbiome, really, I think the number one influence would be the level of microbe accessible carbohydrates in that diet. So those are the, fi the indigestible fibers and carbohydrates that are either uh, re resistant or uh, immune to our digested enzymes. So they pass through the small intestine and they reach the large intestine where about 99% of our microbes reside. And that's where they're going to be fermented. They're serving as an energy source for those microbes. And when those microbes don't have access to those uh, dietary, uh, those, those microbe accessible carbohydrates, they then have to turn to the mucus layer of the intestine. So the large intestine has a bilayer of mucus, the top layer of which is, uh, closer to the, uh, in the inside of the intestine. So it faces the like inside of the hose, uh, and it's inhabited by microbes, but the layer of mucus that sits up directly atop our intestinal cells is intended to be sterile. So what happens when they don't have those microbe accessible carbohydrates, even if they have some amino acids present, those can be fermented as well. It's just not as readily by, by all of the groups of microbes. The ones that need carbohydrate will break down that mucus layer. And that was actually just shown in a Turnbaugh study as well. And he's one of the pioneers looking at the effects of diet on the microbiome. So this is something that's been reproducible and are looking at the effects of low fiber or ketogenic diets um that they, we that we do see some deleterious effects so if we're looking at the effects of flexible dieting it depends on what that person is doing so we can't look at just one food as being unhealthy or fattening or dirty or clean we have to look at entire dietary pattern if their version of a flexible approach which i have to say that the flexible approach is much more evidence-based than taking a rigid approach rigid approaches to dieting have no no positive psychological impacts. So I want to stress that, you know, a flexible approach in terms of psychological health, much more widely supported. But if the flexible approach is leading to nutrient deficiencies like fiber deficiency, that could potentially be problematic for the microbiome. Now, on average in the U.S., we take in about 15 to 19 grams of fiber per day, which is not adequate. We really want to aim for 25 to 38 grams, so 25 a day for females, 38 for males. Um, so, so it really depends on sort of the whole dietary pattern. We don't really know, you know, what the ratio is of, of foods that are highly refined versus foods that are less refined. Because when we look at the, you know, studies are not like, we're going to take a diet, you know, that, like the 80-20 thing. Oh, 80% refined, 80% uh, minimally processed and 20% refined. We don't do that. We're like, this, is, this group gets 100% refined foods. This group gets 100% minimally processed foods. And then we see what happens. And of course, because with minimally processed foods, we have a greater abundance of microbe accessible carbohydrates. There are going to be measurable differences in the microbiome and levels of satiety um, and food intake. So that makes a great deal of sense. So, um, but, but, you know, then what are sort of the clinical outcomes of changes to the microbiome? If we see a reduction in bifidobacteria, what does that actually mean long-term? We're not sure, but it's probably not a great thing because those bacteria are producing butyrate, which we have plenty of evidence to show is, is a beneficial, uh, short chain fatty acid for colon health and for potentially metabolic, uh, flexibility as well. So 
how do we create a healthy gut? How do we know if our gut is functioning well? Obviously, our poops and stuff like that are all going to be good. We're hydrated. We've got great cognitive function. We've got great energy levels. How do we ensure that, that we are taking the right foods and that we are avoiding the foods? Again, it's going to be a very individual to individual basis, but how do we know? And What are some of the markers there to know that we've got a healthy gut environment? Yeah, again, we, we really aren't sure. Um, so in folks who have um, sort of chronic um, uh, diarrhea, there could potentially be a loss of some of the diversity of the luminal, the, the um, bacteria, so microbes rather. So the microbes that live in the center uh, of the intestine that aren't affixed to the mucus layer, they're sort of just like riding the waves. Here, <laughs> think of them like little surfers. So potentially chronic diarrhea, that could be associated with lower diversity. The problem is that by and large, our studies are really looking at the fecal microbiome. So that's the microbes present in fecal samples. Those are significantly different from what we see along the length of the, of the gastrointestinal tract. It's a fairly good proxy for the distal colon, which is good because that's where we see most of, of our uh, microbes. But again, it's more for the luminal microbes, not so much that we don't know a lot about what's going on in the mucus layer, especially what's going on in the mucus layer of the small intestine. So we still have some really significant blind spots, and there's not really for a way for us to know what's going on in our microbiome. And even if we were to get it sequenced, which we can do, you can send in a fecal sample and, and see what microbes showed up in your fecal sample, that's not going to tell you reliably what's going on in the entirety of your gastrointestinal tract. And also it's just a single snapshot. So just like you, you know, taking, you know, one, it's like taking one weight every six months. So what does that tell you about how your weight has changed over time? Absolutely nothing. Fortunately for us, so we're colonized up to, we, we have pretty much mature colonization around age three. So we're first colonized via either passage through the vaginal canal and um, proximity to the rectum. And so we're colonized first by our mother's sort of uh, uh, GI bacteria because of everything sort of, you know, what did I, I just heard the other day, like, oh, I've got a bunch of holes down there. It's like a mini golf course. <laughs> so everything's in sort of close proximity down there. And we used to think like, oh, it's it's the vaginal canal that, that you know, first colonizes. Not really because bifidobacteria are not super abundant in the vagina. They're super abundant in the colon, and that's what we first see coming out uh, in colonization in, in newborns. So congratulations. Now everyone knows that you were colonized by your mom's colonic bacteria. <laughs> or you came out via C-section, and in that case, you were first colonized by bacteria in the uh, environment and in, in the skin. So there's some delay there of of colonization to a mature microbiome. Um, and then of course, if you're breastfed versus bottle fed, that's going to make a difference. And then when you first start in on solid foods, that's where we see like the largest bloom of, of bacteria. So that happens, you know, you're pretty much, like I said, grown up microbiome around maybe age three or so. It stays pretty stable until you get up to old age. So 60s, 70s, you start to see a reduction in diversity. It starts to kind of regress. But about 60 to 80% of the microbiome up to longitudinal studies of five years stay fairly stable. It can be a little bit confusing when we're looking at dietary studies. When we look at dietary interventions, they'll say like, wow, there was a huge change, really significant difference in these few taxa, in these few you know, um, uh, genera or even species. But we're looking at potentially thousands of species. So even if you get a significant change in a few, that doesn't mean that the whole thing changed. There's, you're not like remodeling absolutely everything. We're just seeing significant changes in some groups. Others are just like, they don't care at all. Like you can do um, like bacteroides. Bacteroides might be high in a vegan and high in a carnivore and high in an omnivore because they just don't give a fuck. They're like, I'll take whatever you're going to give me. And then bifidobacteria, they're super finicky and picky. And so if they don't have enough fiber, they just die. Like they can't handle, they can't adapt. So, so, so when we're doing, you know, like these little like um, gut sample things and, and sending them in, it's like really interesting and fun. But um, again, it's a snapshot. But overall, you're probably staying really stable anyway. So, what can you do to ensure that you have sort of a healthy gut? Well, kind of, you know, we have to, I think, throw the idea of like healthy gut out the window because we don't really know what that is. But in terms of maintaining the stability of your microbiome and its resilience 
probably providing it with a wide variety of dietary fibers because we know that they like to use them, but we don't know who likes to use what. So, so they're just like, well, we don't know how they're responding. And since they're interacting with each other too, we can't really say, oh, this specific fiber was used by this specific group of bacteria. So that's why, it, you know, when we're talking about like dietary extremes, you know, people can do all sorts of diets in stupid ways. You can be a dogmatic vegan, you can be a dogmatic carnivore, and you can do it poorly. But when we're looking at the impact of something like dogmatic carnivore diets, probably far more deleterious than something like a dogmatic vegan diet, assuming that the vegan person is eating, you know, a lot of plants and they're getting a lot of fiber. That's probably one of the best things you can do. And then engaging in some form of physical activity, because that does seem to correlate with increased microbial diversity and, and specifically microbes that are producing butyrate. Again, there's going to be kind of a Goldilocks response here. Too little or too much could potentially have negative effects. But engaging in physical activity, also super great. Um, I'm sure people are curious about like probiotics and fermented foods. Fermented foods don't really seem to do much of anything. Um, the, the bacteria that are used to make fermented foods are not necessarily probiotic bacteria because to be a probiotic, it has to be a live bacteria that has been shown to confer some benefit to the host. So not all bacteria that are in our food system are beneficial to the host. Probiotics might do nothing at all. They might go in one end and out the other. They still enrich your fecal matter, but they haven't done anything on the way through. That's kind of a bummer. They're expensive. So maybe don't spend your money on that. Not to say they don't have any applications. If you have diarrhea, it might help. Certain strains, though. So it's very strain-specific. There's no kitchen sink probiotic that everyone needs to take. No such thing as a female or male probiotic. That's just based on some of the minor evidence we've seen in sex-based differences in taxa. So nix that. Um, and, uh, you know, other supplements like, I don't know, I'm trying to think what else. What do people, uh, collagen, greens powders, again, zero evidence and really like no mechanism by which they would help. Um, so that's kind of my, my take home would be get physical activity and eat plants at every meal. And it's not as sexy maybe as some other recommendations, but that's really what we can say so far. No, perfect. I love that. I love how um, you've gone into, here's what the actual science shows is like, regardless of what someone's trying to sell you, here's what the actual science shows is like, you can take it any way you want. You can have your own fucking opinions, but this is what science shows because your opinion is just your opinion. It's going to be wrong at some point, you know? <laughs> But it's like, here's yeah. what it is. Like, I don't, is it sexy? Probably not, but here's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wanted to touch on, and I'm interested in your routines and what you do to, to optimize a daily success. You might change day to day. You may not have any routines, but what does a, a typical sort of morning look like you? The first sort of one to three hours of the morning. Okay, so since I moved out to the West Coast, so I came from the East Coast to the West Coast. There's like a four hour time difference. And when I got out here, I was really exhausted on day one. I went to bed around 8.30. And then day two, still exhausted, went to bed around 9. So fast forward a couple weeks later, I'm waking up at like 4.30 to 5 in the morning and going to bed at 8.30 or 9. That has not changed. Uh, like, <laughs> it's so So what I, you know, so like personal life changed and, and that schedule works really well. So now I'm that crazy person who wakes up at like 4.45 in the morning during the week. It's insane. I don't know how I got here, but that's what I do. So I wake up at 4.45, um, coffee and meditation and some yoga, letting the dogs out, you know, the things that you have to do in the morning. So I would say the first 45 minutes the hour of my day is yeah like coffee yoga meditation I like to tidy in the morning I make sure that like my my work environment my house everything are very clean and then I start working at around 6:45 or 7 um, and I work for uh, a few hours and then about midday I've got to you know let my dogs out and whatnot and then I'll do like a, a bit of cardio you know, in Arizona, it is currently, I want to say it's about 109 or so Fahrenheit, which I think is like 44-ish Celsius. Wow. Super, super hot. Yeah. So I've traded in. Yeah. So I was running outside for a while and um, I'm an avid hiker, but that is on hold <laughs> and I'm doing cardio indoors, which is really fun. I'm kind of getting back to my like 
uh, if, if anyone hasn't heard of the website Fitness Blender, it's really fun. It's all free workouts. So I just do that because I want to get in my you know 30 minutes a day of cardiovascular activity like I recommend for diverse microbiome. Um, and then I work for a couple more hours and then I train um, around maybe like from like about two or three till four or five. Um, and then I've got, you know, the next three hours of my evening are like personal time, hanging out with friends and family, reading, um, maybe watching some stand up and whatnot, and then in bed by 8.30ish. So it's, it's pretty crazy. But I like that schedule of sort of working, you know, seven until three-ish. And um, that's Monday through Friday. I try to really unplug on Saturdays and Sundays. I've kind of moved away from the idea of this like militaristic approach to, you know, work a 70 hour work week and whatnot. Um, Cause most of it's not really super productive. Like you hit, you hit a point at which it's diminishing returns and it's like this gray period where like looking at emails, but not answering them. Cause like your brain's not mm. functioning. Just stop, just turn it off, go do something else. Like your, your body's telling you that you're done. Yeah, it's insane, is it? We've got this entrepreneurial driven age, which I love and I'm definitely an advocate for, but we have taken it from doing absolutely jack shit to I have to work 100 hours a week and you're just like, well, I mean, is that sustainable? Like, do you want your life to be like that? I, I actually recently found myself I have this, I have a whiteboard opposite me and there's this to-do list and it's always like this every day. I was like 20 things to do. Then I don't get them all done, obviously. Yeah. And, and then I just get pissed off. Like, why did I do that? I need to work hard. I need to work smart. And then literally now there's like four things that I need to do every day. And that includes yep. training, things like that. And there's a couple of like specific businessy branding type tasks. And as long as they're done, it's cool. Everything's good. Exactly. Life's much yeah, happier. Yeah. Yeah, I had this conversation with Mike, like, I don't know, many, many months ago, because I was like, dude, I don't know if I can keep this up, like, RP, and then like, traveling so much, and then trying to run my business, it was literally, I mean, 60 hours, and I was toast, I was like, you know, I left academia, because I was like, I want to have control over my schedule, and, you know, do things that I really enjoy, and then I was like, my boss is an asshole, and I'm my boss, like, this has <laughs> to change, you know, <laughs> I need a break. Um, so yeah, it's been huge. I mean, really, it's important to take that time to completely unplug and like your business doesn't go under and like the world doesn't end and you know, your clients understand and, and I, the other big change that I made was my, the, limiting the number of podcasts that I do in a week. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my client call, like long client call, long emails. So most of the time, like Tuesday, Thursdays are my podcast days and I do two podcasts a week. I was at, at one point doing six in a week, six or seven. Wow. And I was like, I was kind of tired, you know, because it's like, they're fun, but like doing that every single day. And, um, and so I was like, all right, I'm just going to, you know, two a week and it like spread it out over time. And it works out so well. And yeah, you just you get more of that time to kind of recover, recuperate. I mean, it's just like training. You don't train like four hours every single day, like grow biceps. <laughs> You know, you do it, do it in a periodized way, knowing that sometimes it's going to be more challenging and then you're going to have a deload. You're going to take vacations and things like that and, and plan that way. So um, that and then I have um, like a year long Excel spreadsheet that I put my big ticket items on. Like oh, I'm going to, you know, produce this or I have to pass this exam or whatever. And they break it up into manageable chunks and uh, do the same thing with um, and then I, I give myself like one project a week. So I'll have like, this is my, this is my week for writing. This is my week for doing this CEU course. Personally, for me, that works better than trying to kind of do a little bit of things each day, which was what I tried for the longest time. And I was like, why isn't this shit working? And that's because I, it just wasn't going to work for me and I just didn't try anything else. So that was a huge thing too, to just say like, oh, I have all this time this week. I can focus on this one thing, get into deep work and flow. Um, so, so yeah, those I think are my big, that, that's changed for me a lot in, in the past several months and it's really been effective for staying more productive, you know, and having my days or my weeks when I focus on certain things. Like this is the day that I'm going to do podcasts. This is the day I'm going to do an infographic. Um, and then I think, you know, there's, there's also a time when you're feeling really inspired and like you just want to sit down and make something, go ahead and do that. That's kind of when I make my best, I think like. Uh, Instagram content when I'm like, oh, I just had this idea and I just like go and jot it down really fast. I can always come back to it later, but at least, you know, when that hits and I have something that's like really true and sincere that I feel like I really want to express, then I'll, I'll do that. 
Who would you say has been your biggest inspiration or someone that you've looked up to throughout your your life that you're trying to emulate their, their path in some sort of way? Oh, man. Um, well, I have to say, so my my maternal grandparents were, were huge um, inspirations to me. So my grandpa, um, he passed away uh, 20 years ago now. But when I was little and I would ask him a question, he would say, like, we have to look in the dictionary or we can look that up in the encyclopedia. There was never a time when he just like told me the answers to something, you know, and um, he was just an incredibly intelligent, um, artistic, really a, a renaissance man. I mean, he was an incredible painter, incredible photographer, um, super intelligent, had worked for the Navy and and um, was just a, a very kind person, too. So he made me very you know, he, he encouraged my curiosity and then also showed me, like, this is where you can go to learn. You know, people are not going to just give you the answers. You have to seek them out. And then my grandma uh, was an ER nurse and just takes no shit, absolutely no shit from anyone, like super high standards um, and really tells it like it is also. You know, so I know that she's not going to BS me, um, but also incredibly caring person who just she always shows up for me and she's just super strong and independent i mean you know that she had to you know, at, when she was you know the age that i am now times were very different and to be uh, a single mom you know putting herself through school that was huge that she did that and and i know that um you know when she met my grandpa like and and chose to let him into her life that that was really meaningful and they were just oh my gosh soulmates mm. So, um, yeah, the two of them, I mean, they're, they're really so supportive and encouraging. Um, and then my dad also, I mean, he has, he's very, he's a, he's a very fascinated person. And I think that that's really wonderful. You know, he'll, he'll like message me about like, yesterday was like, oh, SpaceX and all this stuff. So he's, he just is, you know, finds science in general to be fascinating. And he's also the type of person to say like, hey, you know, you, you can do this. I know it's really tough, but you've come this far. And, and, you know, I know that you're a capable person. That's awesome. And what is one book or article that you might have read recently that's had a profound impact on your life that you think people should check out? Yeah, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. She so she's got um, obviously her Netflix documentary. She's got a TED talk. She talks about the power of vulnerability. I just finished um, Daring Greatly and the Gifts of Imperfection, and she specifically talks about this culture of exhaustion as a status symbol and the way that we use shame to to control each other really um and and how shame can reduce our ability to connect and to show up uh and those you know it's changed the way that i work with my clients it's changed my the way that i you know interact with friends and family and loved ones and and how I conduct my own personal life and business life. Uh, It was just hugely impactful. And I think it's really timely now, especially with everything that's going on internationally and in the U S that, that, you know, people read about that because I think shame is really at the heart of so many of our challenges, whether it's talking about, you know, food and body image or um, you know, how we're interacting with one another so yeah, those those have been huge. So yeah, um, daring greatly, gifts of imperfection, and I've got three more that I just ordered on Amazon today that I'm going to be reading from <laughs> What are you, um, you guys over, whether it's an RP or your own thing, working on for the rest of 2020? What's 2020 got in store for you? Oh man, so with RP, gut health book, well, gut microbiome book, I should say. I'm like, I still am torn on what I want to call this. <laughs> gut health, you know, is very accessible to people, but I'm just like, oh, that term is sort of meaningless. Um, but yeah, so finishing that up and releasing that later this year. Nice. Um, and then I'm working with Shannon Beer from Flex Success. We just put out our third installment of the Bridging the Gap series. We've got our fourth coming up. We are doing weekly um, Instagram live interviews with our clients to give them a voice in this sphere so that they can tell us what their experiences have been, not as a testimonial, but to say, hey, I come to you with experience and knowledge and success and challenges and skills. And as a client, here's what I want you to know if you're going to want to work with me as a coach. Um, So we've got that and a few other things that are on the docket that we just haven't announced yet, but um, we're super excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah. So, so the bridging the gap series and, and fleshing out uh, and sharing our 
comprehensive coaching framework. So how we envision sort of um, shifting along with the paradigm that's already shifting. The dialogue is already shifting in industry. So how can we as coaches then um, rise up to that demand and help to kind of elevate the entire industry in response? Awesome. And I want to be super respectful of your time, Gabrielle. But lastly, where could people reach out, say hello, see what you are up to? Oh, yeah. So Vitamin PhD, that's at Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I have my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. So all of my podcasts, publications, presentations, um, and articles can be found there, including the Bridging the Gap series. Perfect. And all those will be linked in the show notes below. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much.